Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Walk Show podcast where we explore the walk of life. This is your host, Walker Near. As always, the music for the show is provided by Misha Zarin, so thank you, Misha. I also want to briefly mention the Ozarks Food Harvest, which is a food bank here in southwest Missouri. To be clear, I have no official relationship with Ozarks Food Harvest, but they are doing very important and meaningful work to help feed hungry people across many locations. I encourage you to find a way to contribute to your local food bank, as it is a cause that has an immediate impact on people in your area. I also invite you to subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice, as well as follow me on social media. All of the links will be available in the show notes. This week, we are joined by writer, educator, and all-around inspiration, Sophronia Scott. Sophronia began her career as an award-winning magazine journalist for Time Magazine. Her first novel was published in 2004, and she has since written several more books, along with countless articles and essays for various journals and publications throughout the world. I was truly humbled to have the opportunity to speak with Sophronia, not just because of her accolades and accomplishments, but the nature of her character. She is just brimming with kindness, generosity, and a wisdom about life. I loved my conversation with Sophronia, and I think you will enjoy it too. Without further ado, let's get over to the conversation with Sophronia. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast, Sophronia Scott. Thank you so much for joining. How are you doing this evening? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm very, very excited and honored to have you on the show. Um, I have some things that I wanted to, to ask you about, but but to quickly introduce you to the audience a bit, um, you are a a, a career uh, writer, author, journalist. I mean, you've been. I, I had I was astonished by the the wealth of articles and essays and, and books that that you've written. How long have you been? Uh, how long have you been a writer? Uh- well, technically, since I was a child, okay. professionally, since I, I left, um, since I graduated from high school. I'm sorry, not high school, college, because uh, Time Magazine hired me out of college. So yeah, yeah, I was I was seeing that one of your first uh, publications was um, an article in Time Magazine, and it, it's just so interesting to see. Uh, you know, you and I were just talking briefly before we started recording about a mutual friends that we have, Chris Crabtree and, and uh, Richard Farrell, and and both of those people, you know, Richard even later than, than Chris, but came to writing a bit later in their journey, right? It wasn't something that they knew as children that they wanted to pursue. Mm-hmm. Um, but in your case, that's something it sounds like that maybe you kind of had, that was the idea of what you wanted to be the whole time. Actually, no. Oh, because, okay. Because, and, and you probably saw this in the, your research, I grew up in a home where, you know, my father didn't know how to read, mm. right? So I didn't have a concept of writing as a career, you know, if you, you look back, you'll find an article of me when I was 16 in high school. And um, the article was being done because someone noticed I had published these poems in um, the local paper. Mm. But in the article, I'm talking about going to medical school because I thought I was going to be a doctor. And one of those reasons is because, well, first of all, I loved watching doctors on TV. <laughs> I loved watching <laughs> Medical Center and shows like that. But um but I, I also, you know, I came from a large family. We didn't have a lot of money. So to me, being a doctor was the way that I could take care of myself. Mm. So um, I went to Harvard and hated science. I, I was majoring in biology and I was really unhappy. And writing had always been a way that, that um, I, it was something I'd always loved doing. So I was 
squeezing in writing while trying to take these other classes. And there was this one class, it was called Introduction to Rhetoric. It was um, my junior year. And it was a writing class that required you write five pages a week and you were paired with a mentor and you would go over that work each week. And something told me, I said, you know, if I wrote five pages a week, something might happen. Something great might happen in my life. I have no idea what, but I'm gonna do this class. And I did. And at one point I, I won an award for um, one of the things I wrote for that class. But then also my teacher said to me, what are you doing? Don't you realize you're good enough to get paid for this? And I hmm. said, what? People get paid for this? How? Where? <laughs> Tell me. Right? And, um, and he was the one who put me in touch with a recruiter from time. And, and that's how it went from there. I see. I see. Well, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a, a fascinating story. Um, so something that, that you'll find as we weave through this conversation is I'll kind of jump around a bit. So, yeah, um, no <laughs> but so I, I looked at your, your YouTube channel, which I, I love the videos that you have there. The, 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 the primary series of videos, I guess you could call it the, the morning walks that you do. Yeah. Uh, those are, those are so, are so great. They're just for, for anyone who maybe hasn't had a chance to see them there. Um, roughly, I mean, they're less than 10 minutes, certainly, but roughly yeah. maybe five or seven minutes. Yeah. Um, so they're, they're, they're definitely, you know, bite size. Um, but they're, they're very thoughtful, um, kind of just explorations of ideas while you're going on these walks in these really beautiful scenic areas in, in Connecticut. Is that correct? Yeah. But I, I do them wherever I happen to be. So okay. last year, you know, I was in Iowa. I try to do one whenever, wherever I am. So there's some from Iowa, there's some in New Jersey, um, you know, wherever I happen to be, I'll, I'll record one. So how did you, how did, how did you come to, to that? I mean, it's, I mean, to some extent, maybe, I don't know, perhaps you write out what you're going to say, but it doesn't seem like it. If you do, no. then you're very good. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't. I do think about what I, I want to talk about. I think about, okay, what's on my mind? And mm. and just to make sure that I, um, I I put forth the ideas that I want to say, you know, okay, I, I want to make sure I address this, this, and this, so that I, I deliver a complete thought in, in mm. because it is not a lot of time. Um, but it's it started because, you know, I I have a blog on my um, on my website, but it, it takes a lot of time and effort to to write pieces for the blog, and I was trying to figure out a way to to provide content on my website without having to to sit down and, and write something you know, that, because my writing time can be used for a book project, for example, and I happen to be in um, at the Hobart um, Festival of Women Writers. It happens every year in the Catskills. And I, I just had happened to have my phone out and I was on my way to one of the sessions because I wasn't teaching yet that day. And I said, you know, wouldn't it be cool to just tell people, here I am in this wonderful place where there are a ton of bookstores and, and there are wonderful authors on the slate. So I'm just going to tell people about this event. And, and that's what I did. And, um, and people really liked it. And so I said, you know, let me keep doing this. And then, um, the year, a few months later, I decided, okay, I'm going to try to do one of these every week for a year. Mm. And, and so, and I, I did that and, and I kind of grew into it as I, you know, as I kept doing it. Um, I've only done like one a month since the, the spring because I was in the middle of a book deadline and such. But, um, but tomorrow, I'm actually recording one tomorrow and getting back on my weekly schedule. But I like Wonderful. doing it. It's, it's simple. And, um, you know, I put it, it, I can put it up anywhere. I put it on my social media. I put it on my website and I do, um, 
and I post it on my Instagram. So it's really mm. cool. So, you know, something that I, and I, I, I probably say this every week, I probably preface this every week now, because I, I talk about this so, so much lately, but it's, it's something that I don't know um, if I'm just seeking it. And so I find it, or if it's just, a, 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 just always there. And now it's become obvious to me, but um, something that I, that I noticed in your work, whether it be, and, and to be clear, I mean, I haven't read certainly even uh, close to most of what you've written. Um, but, but the things that I've read and, and the, the things I listen to, um, with your videos, something that you do is even in, even in a five minute video, right? Which is not that much time, but even in that, that small window, something that you often do is speak to, um, the, the hardship. I don't want to necessarily say, say tragedy. I mean, certainly there are tragic, some things that are tragedy, but, but uh, not to overstate everything, but, but you'll speak to the hardship of something. And then at the same time, also try and talk about the hope that maybe surrounds that or the way, the way that that could be better, or the way that that could be different. Yeah. The um, way that th things are going to be all right. Yeah. And well, it, it's so interesting to me because um, I've, I've, I've just, I've come across a lot often this concept of, um, of holding two ideas that maybe seem uh, opposite or mutually exclusive and holding them simultaneously, like the acknowledging that something is hard or that something is, is tragic while simultaneously exploring how we can improve it or how we can get better at it. Yeah. And I, I, Richard uh, Farrell, actually, our, our friend, um, he shared a quote with me that is uh, contradiction is the lever of transcendence. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, I've just been, I can't stop thinking about it <laughs> since he said that. And I just, I found that that was true um, in your work as well. And I don't know, is that, is that an idea that, that you actively think about or does that kind of just happen naturally or? Uh, yeah. You know, and, some, some of that is, is, I think somewhere in my personality, but it's also something that I've lived. Um, because if you, I mean, if you've re researched my, my work, you know that um, I live here in Sandy Hook, Connecticut, and and the shooting is is part of the tapestry of our family because my son was in the school that day of the shootings, and um, one of his friends died, and so living through that grief. Right. And observing the way my son has handled his grief made me understand, if I didn't even understand it before, the importance of holding those two things and that this is the essence of how you move forward in life and continue to to make something out of the hard things that have happened and that this is how we we survive instead of being crushed by our grief. Mm -hmm. So. So this is something that that he and I talk about a lot. Um, I've learned a lot from him. And, um, but some, some people will tell you that, well, he's really reflecting myself and maybe he's giving something back to me that I lost in the wake of a tragedy. So, um, so I, I think about that a lot. Um, I also was really influenced by um, this um, movie called The Shack. I don't know if hmm. you've ever seen that movie. Octavia, um, Oh, uh, what is her name? Spencer, I think the actress. Um, she's playing. She's playing one of the many incarnations of God in this film, and it's the story of this man whose whose daughter has been 
um, kidnapped and murdered by a serial killer, and he he is broken in relationship with God. And there's a um, a place where he in the story where he has an encounter with God, and spends the weekend with with these different incarnations of God, <clears throat> and he is he is acting out in anger, right? Saying, "Why didn't you stop this? Why didn't you do something about this?" And and I, and God makes it very clear to him. God does not cause these things, but God is constantly trying to make something of these horrible things happen. And I and that and I realized that 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 was the same way that Tain seemed to behave, even though he was only eight years old, that that he's moving forward, honoring his grief while at the same time, you know, living his life as a child in, in hope of what is next. So so I, I think about that, think about what is going on here in creation and, and what is my role in any given moment in, in this, in this whole haphazard craziness that's going on. Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, you know, um, it, it's a, it, it's, it seems to be a principle that's universal. Um, even outside of, um, outside of something that maybe is, is grief. Like it also, I think maybe applies to, um, when someone like, so, so as an example, one of the articles that, that you had shared with me, um, whenever we had, had were in the scheduling process for this was an article that you wrote, um, that was, it looks like published in June in, in Ruminate magazine, but that was, um, about the racial inequalities in the, the publishing industry and mm-hmm. the challenges that, that minority writers face, face, you know, with just getting equal, fairly compensated. Um, and in that, like you told a story of, of you being on this zoom call and um how basically a, a lady had talked about a, a story that she'd written a white lady had talked about a story that she'd written in a, an advance or, or a large advance that was given or perhaps a story about that um for this this book idea and it was brought up that there was and i don't know if this person was on the call or not i, I apologize i don't remember but basically there was a latina woman who had written the Here, let me thing. let me let me tell yeah. the story for you so you can so we get it straight so yes, we, we were talking about american dirt right so the um the controversy around that novel which is about um a mexican family but written by a white woman and there was the controversy around whether or not she should be telling such a story doesn't does she have to be a minority woman to write that story and and one of the um writers who had blurbed the book who had endorsed it was a, a well-known Hispanic female writer. And so when all of this went down and people are going to her to talk to her, like, well, why do you think that this is a good book and she should be allowed to write it? And, and what you think of this controversy? She, she said, I still think this is a good book, but she said, but what hurt me is when I found out how much of an advance the woman had received. So the white writer had received like a, a huge, like six or even seven figure advance on that book. And she said, you know, this white writer received that advance while I'm being told that my story, which is the story that this woman wrote, is not of value. Mm. Right. So I told that story exactly as I told it to you in this Zoom room of writers. And and the, the woman leading the session said, but was the book as but was the Hispanic woman's book as well written? Mm. And I just I just looked at her and, and just wanted to flip out. Like that is not even the question to be asking. And it's definitely not the question to be asking this week when the publishing paid me hashtag was revealing all of these disparities between 
of writers of color and white writers and, and who gets what money in the publishing marketplace. Yes. And, and thank you for, for, for sharing the story accurately, because uh, I clearly was stumbling <laughs> with the detail. Um, but well, and, and so the, the, the point I wanted to bring up is that in in the, the essay that you that you wrote, it, it's exactly that. So you just as you just illustrated, you laid out, which I was again, I'm not trying to flatter you, but I was impressed with how gracefully you uh, positioned <laughs> your thoughts on that when you said that's not the right question. And that's not the right question this week. Like, that was a, a very um, um, kind way of correcting someone. Um, and, and that is my, my exact point is that even when you're standing up to um, something that is oppressive, you're still also recognizing this empathy and, and seeing the other person as a person still. And so even though you were, you were frustrated and hurt in the moment, you're then able to, to actually still explain and have a conversation with these people about, you know, what is, what is upsetting. Um, that, that's not easy to do. And, mm-hmm. and I have to, you know, that, I think that's what meditation is for. It, it helps you to be aware in the moment. I have reminders, like I'm going to show you this note, even though we can't see it on the podcast, this post-it note that says love, compassion, mercy, you know, like, you know keep that on the desk especially in a time like this where, where emotions are high, right? People are afraid because of the virus and because of all of these other things happening. So, so it's like even when people act out or misunderstand, you have to understand that they're not coming from a place of meanness. Nobody mm. is innately mean, right? Yeah, so it's like, so it's like, why be on the attack for someone who is who doesn't even realize may not even realize that they're attacking right, right. So, so how do you how do i stay within myself and, and not go into energy that is not mine right yeah yeah i think it, it just it again you know it, it speaks i, I had a, a friend come on the show a long time ago now and, and he talked about balance and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of platitude you know or, or can be certainly and that's kind of how i took it when he was talking about the importance of balance and things um, but I kind of, I kind of looked at it more on the, this kind of, if you will, surface layer of, um, you know, <laughs> it's, it's okay to have a cookie, but you don't want to have cookies for all the meals or, you know, some right. silly kind of balance thing. But then, but th- that's why I'm just so, again, uh, I keep talking about it, but it, it's this idea of like, it's deeper than that. I mean, certainly it is that too, but it's deeper than that, where it's it, what you just described, where, um, you know, it, it's being able to stand up for something, and it's also at the same time, it, it, it's, it, it, it's, it, yeah, it, it's being not aggressive because that's not the right word. But again, like not, not, not letting someone walk over you and, sta- and standing your ground while simultaneously embracing that person, which, like you said, is incredibly hard. And right. uh, but you also have to understand because some people also think that that means being somehow nice and being nice and Pollyannish, you know, mm-hmm. but um, you'll also notice that in, in that essay, I talked about how I was angry and how I was hurt and, and I really wanted to just hang up the Zoom call on her, right? So, yeah. so I have to honor that aspect of myself, right? That, that mm-hmm. it's okay to be frustrated and angry, right? But, but I don't have to give myself over to that, right? right. Um, I think... Um, you know, I, and I hope it's okay that I make a Bible reference, but I, I find the, the book of Luke, 
I find um, an amusing gospel because there's so many instances in there where, where Jesus is just like, people, how many times do I have to tell you this? But you haven't <laughs> learned this yet. And, and it, just, it just cracks me up because to me, that that's that just shows the humanity. You know, we think of Christ as Christ, but, but Christ got frustrated too, right? Right. And threw stuff around in the temple. Like, you guys shouldn't be doing this. And and so it's okay to be angry. It's okay to, to, uh, to you know, let that emotion out. But, but then what do you make of it? Same thing. What do you make of it? Where do I go from here with this? Another uh, another video of yours that I had watched um, that that was very significant to me personally um, was the video. Uh, it was the, you were reading an essay that you wrote about Kobe Bryant whenever he had passed. Mm. Uh, our Chris Crabtree and I are both very very big Kobe Bryant fans. Um, we actually did an episode on on this show in memoriam of of Kobe whenever he had passed away. Um, talking about about it and it was so interesting to see and again i don't mean this as a in a, in a trying to be a flattering way i i really encourage people to go and and, and look at this and, and i'll link your channel and and the essays and things in, in the show notes so people have direct links to it but i mean chris and i talked for you know probably nearly an hour about kobe bryant and and we certainly shared a lot of stories and insights into why he meant something to us um, but your essay, I mean, the video, it, I mean, it, again, it's, I don't think it's 10 minutes, right. For you to read the essay. And you said so much about the, the character of Kobe Bryant. How did you, cause you, you kind of talk in that though, about that you're not really a significant basketball fan. So how did Kobe kind of enter your, your mental space as you kind of described? Well, because I, but I am a sports fan. Okay. So, so ESPN, I've, I've listened to watch ESPN every single day and, and I'm always interested in, in strong personalities, which he mm. has been from the very beginning. So, so um, and I think I said this in the essay, that he's always been on the edge of my consciousness. Yes. I'm just very curious about him. You know, the fact that he knew Italian, right? And, and the fact that he was so intentional about mm. his excellence, you know, from the very beginning. And, and I admire that. Right. So it's like, OK, you know, it's like I didn't even realize I was watching him, but just watching how this person is moving through the world. Right. That's that's exciting to me. Yes. So um, and, and I didn't realize how how much hope he represented to me, you know, especially in the more recent work that he was doing with with women's basketball and and coaching mm -hmm. his daughters and things like that. It's just fascinating to me. It's like, OK, but here's a person with everything in, in the world. So what does he do with it? And so it's like, wow, look at that. The message he put out into the world, you know, the, the basketball documentary that he won the Oscar for, right? It's, it's interesting to see what it looks like when someone is truly engaged with life, 
making intentional decisions, um, reading. He was a great reader, right? And and I just I just think that that's amazing, right? And the, yeah. and I guess I just wanted to express that that people probably didn't realize that those were the aspects that they were responding to in him, right? Mm. That they probably didn't even realize that that Kobe Bryant was calling all of us to be something better in ourselves. Mm. Right? And we didn't realize it until we lost that, right? Right. Yeah, um, yeah, for me, Kobe was, um, I mean, he was, you know, I was obviously just a fan of him as a basketball player, just the, the on-the-court stuff. Um, but I was also just, I was always just really, really moved by his, as you put it, intention. Um, but yeah, just his single-mindedness and and how when other people would try and um, not just put him down, but whatever, you know, try and challenge him or challenge, you know, what he was doing or whatever. The way he would respond to it wasn't, it wasn't, it, it was literally like he, he just, he would just tell, he would just respond with, I just don't actually care. Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm not worried about what that other person thinks about me because I know what I do and I know what I'm yep. about and yep. I, I didn't do it for them. You know what I mean? So they can exactly. say or think whatever they want. And I think in, in our culture in America, especially with it, so obsessed with celebrity and you know, here I am talking about a celebrity, right. But, but I think he was unique in that he, I, I think the, the cult of celebrity constantly gets people caught up in exactly that and worrying about what others will think or say and how we are judged. And I think that he, um, kind of showed that that's it, it's silly, it's unnecessary, yeah. and um, and it doesn't it doesn't move us forward, right? Yeah. Well, think about it. If he had, for example, you know, there would be people who who probably said, "Well, why was he flying around in this helicopter anyway?" And he's this big shot, and he travels with by helicopter. If he had listened to that, and was like, "Wow, maybe I shouldn't fly in a helicopter," but when you think about it, why why did he use a helicopter? He used a helicopter so that he could get to practice when he practiced and be home to take, to pick up his kids from school. Right. That was the thing that was important. And, and he knew that and nobody else needed to know that. Right. So this made his life a certain way made him the father that he wanted to be. Right. So you hold to the thing that you know, and that you understand and not be spun around by, by what other people are saying. Right. So he, he, he was a very strong personality in that. Yes. Yeah, he was. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was, I thought your essay was, was very beautiful and, and it was, uh, it was really cool. I, I, I didn't, uh, I don't, I didn't really have a clear expectation, but I, I just don't commonly stumble onto to thoughtful essays about Kobe Bryant like that. So it was very pleasant <laughs> to find. Um, so thank you for having shared that. Did you find the, the text of, I know I read it for the river pretty thing, but the, the text of it is on uh, multiplicity magazine. Oh, yeah. oh okay. So no, yeah. It. Gotcha. Well, I will, I will look for that as well then and, and, and make sure to link that for people who want to read it as well. Um, yeah, I had found the River Pretty link, um, our YouTube post that you had done. Um, so yeah, I, I, I have to admit, and this is not really specific to, to you, I guess, but I, I, Chris Crabtree, I, I shared with you, I've known my whole life. And, and so I certainly knew him when he was going to River Pretty on a regular basis. I kind of always had the impression that River Pretty was like just people from the local college here in Springfield, Missouri. <laughs> And now I'm finding that I was completely wrong about the audience and the crowd at River Pretty. It's from it's people from all over the country. Well, a lot of people are from Springfield. There are a lot of students um, from from uh, the school where um, 
Jen Mervin teaches and, and Lee Busby and, and the guys who you know created it, all of the people who created it. But then, um, but they, all of them are, well, not all of them, Jen isn't, but Lee and, um, um, oh gosh, um, is it Scott? I'm blanking on their names, but the core and Rich, they all went to the Vermont College of Fine Arts, right? Mm. Which is where I, I went to. I wasn't there when they were there, but, but um, Rich was a grad assistant when, when I started. So they know all of these other people. And, and so, you know, we end up going, right? Yeah. So we're coming from other places. Um, a couple of the people, um, the, the visiting writers are instructors from the Vermont Co- College of Fine Arts. So the, that's, that's how that happens. Yeah. 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 I just, I, I, now I get why Chris was always so excited to go. I was always like, don't you, aren't you just around these people all the time anyway? But no, that's not the case. So, <laughs> um, well, so I, I was, I was also noticing on your website that you, and I'm, I, I'm curious, I guess how this is, how the, it's going now with, with the COVID situation, but you were actually putting together a retreat, I believe the second iteration of a retreat in Italy yes. this year. Is that is that yes. correct? Yeah. And is that still is that still on or is that had to be postponed because of the pandemic? It was postponed and okay. and now I'm not quite sure what's going to happen because I I actually have a new position now. I'm actually um I'm the director of a new low residency MFA program. So uh, yes. congratulations. I, thank you. So I'm working on that right now and I don't know what my schedule will be like next year. I probably won't be able to uh, to to do all that I need to do to promote and run that workshop because I'm promoting and running this huge MFA program. <laughs> right, so. right, right. So yeah, so I mean, so is, it, it have obviously, like I said, you know, I found a, a wide collection of articles and essays and, and books that you've written over the years. But have you always been involved in education throughout your career as as well? You know, I not formally. Okay. And by that, I mean, uh, after I left uh, People Magazine and before I got my MFA, I was uh, teaching writing to uh, to aspiring writers, but, but mainly entrepreneurs who were mm-hmm. learning how to write books to promote their businesses. And mm-hmm. so I would teach webinars. I would go to conferences and teach workshops and things like that. And... Um, one of the, um, and I had always thought I was going to, to get an MFA, but um, one of my clients had a daughter who was writing a novel and he asked me to work with her on it. And, and she was a young woman in her 20s. And at one point she told me that she wished she had a teacher like me when she was in college. And that made me start thinking about, you know, maybe, maybe I should be teaching in, in, in the academy somehow. And, and that was another reason um, that nudged me in the direction of getting my MFA. I see. I see. You, you've written both fiction and nonfiction books. Um, I, it's something I've kind of came to understand here in the last few years. I, I had, and when I was younger, I, I read primarily just fiction books. And, and then somewhere in my 20s, I stumbled into to Malcolm Gladwell and mm. um, and then and then thought, oh, I only like nonfiction now. Right. And then because <laughs> he's so good. Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, and, and some other nonfiction authors as well, but uh, but Gladwell, certainly. Yeah. Uh, but then then about a, a year ago, probably I read um, a fiction series. It was a, a fantasy series. Um, so not even grounded in any sort of reality other than I mean, the characters are people, I guess. Um, <laughs> but I actually found um, 
I actually found a lot of significance that applied to my real life from this, this fiction book. So as someone who's written both kinds, do you find one more fulfilling than the other? Do you find them just fulfilling in entirely different ways? And can you maybe just explain what is it, what is the, what goes into writing a fiction book versus a nonfiction book and, or what do you get out of those experiences? Well, with fiction, I get to create a world, Mm. right? I get to create a world and, and sometimes um, it's, it's unexpected. Like, I Mm. think I know the story that I'm telling, but, but the process of, of developing the fiction, I learn a lot about myself. Mm. I learn about the things I want to communicate to the world that I wouldn't necessarily uh, talk about overtly in a nonfiction book. I wouldn't have a way of talking about it in a nonfiction book. Mm. Um, so, for example, um, my latest novel, Unforgivable Love, is a retelling of the story of Dangerous Liaisons, which has been in my mind for years. Like, for some reason, I've been fascinated with that story and not knowing why. Mm. And and when a friend nudged me to <clears throat> to write a version of it with black people, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I could do that. And it'll be in Harlem and it'll be in the 1940s. But um, <clears throat> but that just gets me started, right? So I have a setting, I have people, but I have to start asking myself, why, why am I interested in these characters? Why was this fascinating to me in the first place? Mm-hmm. And I was in the, the kitchen of my um, friend Jane, who lives down the street from me here, and I'm, I was telling her as I was developing the story and I was telling her about this Jackie Robinson connection that I think is going to be important for my my male lead for Valmont. I said, there's something about watching Jackie Robinson break the color line in baseball that changes this man or, or begins to change him. And, and even though he's a lousy rake of a man. And she told me, she said, and she's just, you know, doing doing her thing in her kitchen and like cleaning the dishes. And she said, Sophronia, I read your first book. And that, that was a novel about a, a family who had a son with uh, drug addiction. And she said to me, you don't throw people away. You're all about redemption. And, and it was like a light bulb went off in my head. And I was like, oh, I'm trying to redeem Valmont. Oh my mm. goodness. Okay. <laughs> now I see what's happening here, right? Right. And, and more as I got into that story of of, of um, sexuality, right? It's, it's a story about sexuality and betrayal. But why is this interesting to me? And it's like, okay, one of the reasons why these people can do the way that they, the, the awful things that they do is because we aren't open enough with our own sexuality. Mm. Right? We lie to ourselves about it. We hide it. And, and because we, we don't know enough about ourselves sexually, we open ourselves to ma- manipulation by others. Right. So that's exactly <clears throat> to me, that's what, how I saw that story playing out. Right. Um, mm-hmm. with the, the young girl in the in the in the story, um, the Cecily character. If you look at a number of different movies of Dangerous Liaisons, the one with um, Uma Thurman played this character. Um, I forget who a, a child played her in the, the Colin Firth version. But they make Cecily, Cecile, a very clownish character. Mm-hmm. But. For me, I'm like, okay, this girl is in the situation that she's in because no one has spoken to her honestly about sex. And mm. she's open to this manipulation and she has to figure out how to get her life back, how to own her womanhood after this happens to her. And so it was amazing to me to watch the way this character became the hero in this book in a way that I totally didn't expect. 
right? Mm -hmm. I ended up changing the end of the book to honor what she had become. So you see, um, so fiction allows me to do that, to explore these things that I didn't realize were within me, to, to say things. And, and as, as these characters come together and grow and develop, it's a, it's a marvelous discovery, right? And I, I love that book. I, I love it. I'm just, just so happy with the way it turned out. Um, with nonfiction, you know, sometimes I, I don't, I, I also don't know what's going to happen when I start an essay. I may think that I'm telling you about something, but then if I'm inquiring of myself as I'm writing, I may find that I'm writing about something totally different. Mm. Okay, so for example, there's an essay in my book, Love's Long Line. It's called A Fur for Annie Pearl. And I think that I'm, I, when I started that essay, I'm, I'm, I said, I'm going to tell the story about Annie Pearl, which is, um, she was an elderly woman who was a friend of my father's who I, I didn't know her until after my father had died. Mm. And in Ohio, my mother makes me go see this elderly woman who I don't know, but who keeps asking about me. So I go see her and she ends up like she comes, this 80 something year old woman comes leaping off the porch. My baby's home, my baby's home. And I'm like, who? and she grabs me. Who is this woman? <laughs> and then she says, your father. Bassie Scott, when you came home from the hospital, when he brought you in from the hospital, when you were a baby, and she had like a dish towel, she had wrapped up in her arms. He brought you to me just like this. And he said, Pearl, I have something for you. And it was you. And I just grabbed you and loved you. And 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 I was enthralled with this story because I never heard of a story of, of my father holding me like that as an infant. And as it turned out, she knew him even before he'd married my mom. So he, she was telling me all these amazing stories about him. And I was fascinated by her. And at one point she says to me, while we're sitting there in her little house, you live in New York City, don't you? Can you get me one of the fur coats that I see the women on TV wearing? And I knew what she was talking about, like, like Louise Jefferson on the Jeffersons, you know, wearing a fur coat. And I said, you know, I... I just wanted to pay this woman back. I felt like she had given me something of my father that I didn't have. I said, I'm yes, I'm going to get you a fur coat and I don't know how I'm going to do it. But I'm going to get this fur coat. And, and, and so I think the essay is going to be about this, the, about the journey of me going to all these thrift stores on the upper East side, looking for the perfect fur coat for Annie Pearl. But in that essay, I had to ask myself, why was I so enthralled? with that search that I, here I am writing about it years after the fact, right? Mm -hmm. And it made me start thinking about the process of giving gifts to my mother. And my, my mother mm -hmm. by the way, passed away in, in November, but my mother was a very um, girlish, you know, childish kind of personality where, you know, her birthday was in January. And even though you'd just given her a Christmas present, she will want to know what you're getting her in January. <laughs> What am I what are you getting for Mother's Day? What it like it was constant gift, gift, gift. And and there was a point where I felt and that I realized that part of the joy that I had with Annie Pearl, I didn't have with giving gifts to my mom. Mm. That, that I had gotten to a point where I was just give her anything, just box up anything and give it to her, sometimes even just write a check. Right, because I think I can quote Sally from Charlie Brown Christmas, where she writes to Santa, "If it's too hard, just send money. How about tens and twenties? 
right? So it's like that, just send my mom money, right? And, and so there's a turning point in that essay when I realized with a heavy heart, I'm writing about my mother. I'm writing about my mother. And then to take it a step further, I realized I was angry with my mother because um, one of my sisters, a sister who had been her caregiver, had passed away. And my sister wasn't even, um, not even a year younger than I am. And I realized that I was angry at her for my sister's death, that I felt my sister had been a gift that had been thrown away. Mm. Right? So that was that was a tough essay. And, and it doesn't even end in a resolved way because I, I didn't know what to do with that. Right? And I was honest about that in the essay. So... Yeah. But because I wrote that essay, it allowed me to recognize that anger and to find a way to work through that process while my mom was still alive, right? Wow. And, and come to, um, to to just work my way through that, right? So imagine what that would have been like. You know, like I said, my mom died in November. Imagine what that would have been like if my mom had died and I had realized this anger after the fact. Right. Right. And now no way to, to reconcile it in the same way. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So that's, to me, that's the, the gift of, um, of, of that kind of nonfiction. Sure. So in, in this, I don't even know if this question makes sense to be honest, but whenever, I mean, obviously, you know, this, the, the, the examples you just gave there were, were, were moments through the creative process of writing where, there were kind of personal revelations um, that then shaped the, the writing. Do you find that, that that's, is that typically how writing plays out? Or, or I guess what I'm trying to ask is like, are, are you ever writing things to try and, and just share a, like to, to teach something or to share a message with something? Or is it something that's usually a personal revelation? And not that that's not still useful or, or teaching to other people, because certainly it is. But does that make sense? Like with others in mind versus with like uh, how it comes through your own lens. And maybe that doesn't make sense. I don't know. No, I, mean, I understand what you mean. Um, I don't see myself as, as teaching, hmm. but I model. Hmm. I think sometimes it helps to, to show how I how I handled something. And I, I am more likely to do that if I find that I'm being asked something over and over again. So, for example, there's an essay in my book called Why I Didn't Go to the Firehouse, which and the firehouse was the place where the, it's, it's, um, it shares the same driveway with the Sandy Hook School. And that was where the parents all went when they heard about the shootings and waiting to be reunited with their child. And, and when I heard about the shootings, even though I was just down the street, I didn't go to the firehouse. I went home. And so, so I would get asked about that. You know, why didn't you go? And, and what were you doing afterwards? And all of these things. And, and I realized, you know, there's, there's something I even learned about myself in that thought process. So let me put this on paper. Right. Um, so that's, so that, that's how those things tend to come about for me. Um, I see. Same thing with um, the book I just finished, which is, um, <clears throat> it's a book um, basically about my, my dialogue with um, Thomas Merton, the monk. And that came about because I was at a, a conference. I was on a Thomas Merton panel and I explained to the audience, you know, I'm not a theologian. I'm, 
I'm not <clears throat> an academic. I'm just, I, I just have this monk who follows me around and he gives me advice. <laughs> and, and I talk about how, how his, how I apply what I learned from him in, in terms of everyday events. And, and people came up to me afterwards, you know, talking about how much it helped them. And finally a woman said, and you're doing your Thomas Merton book, right? And, and you know, there are tons of Thomas Merton books. There are all sorts of books about Thomas Merton. And suddenly again, that light bulb, yeah, I can write my Thomas Merton book, right? Yeah. And it'll be, it'll be just like what we were talking about. It'll be, how does a normal everyday person engage with Thomas Merton in this day and age? Right. So let, let me do that. If I can, if I can do that and show myself dialoguing, and I even, I think say that in the book that, that here's my Merton and in hopes that it help you find your Merton. Something that, that you touched on, and it probably made me think of it just from the word monk, frankly, um, but you had touched on it earlier, um, and, and it was one of the videos that, that I watched that you had where you were in this, um, like, stone circle labyrinth. Um, yes, I was walking the labyrinth, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and, and, that, and that word is meditation. So um, if, if you wouldn't mind, could you maybe share what is your experience with meditation? And, and, and the reason I ask, I guess, is because I've only, within the last year, started practicing meditation at all. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like the way I do it is, is I'm, I'm usually trying to, to be, you know, still somewhere and like focusing on my breath and mm-hmm. not necessarily forcing thoughts out. Cause I, I, I've learned that trying to force things is kind of not the point of meditation, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but learning to like one friend of mine described it as maybe you're in a canoe and like, as you canoe down the river, the thoughts come. And so you can acknowledge them, but then you let them pass in the current with the river and continue on. Right. You don't um, jump in the river and go off with them. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm so bad about getting out of the boat sometimes still, but I, I try and get back in. Um, but anyway, I just, so I thought it was really interesting to hear you use that, that word in, in talking about doing like a walking meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, maybe that's what I'm curious about, but I guess just in general, what is, yeah. What is your experience with meditation and how do you, how do you do that? Yeah. It's, I, I think meditation, even though I, I have, you know, this is my office, this room that I'm in, and I have a meditation cushion right over there. Um, I, I think it is helpful to sit, but I think it's it's helpful in general to, to learn how to be mindful, which mm-hmm. I think what is what meditation does. It allows us to be quiet and to recognize what is. Here, mm-hmm. here you know, we are in this moment, right? You're focusing on your breath, but you're also knowing that, that here is the air and 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 that sense of what we talked about earlier everything is all right 
Mm -hmm. right? Be here in this moment and not over there, right? And not mm -hmm. thinking, okay, what's going to happen when the kids go back to school next month, right? Yeah. Um, and and you know, usually being in a place of fear means you are your brain is elsewhere. It's not here because in right. this moment, right now, everything is all right, right? Yeah. I'm not sick. You're not sick. My my husband and son aren't sick. If someone gets sick, then I will be in that moment and I will do what, what needs to be done at that time. But I'm not going there at the moment. Right. Right. And and I find yeah. that and, and this is actually something I wrote about in the firehouse essay because it's the same thing that that meditation prepares you for that moment when when the bad stuff happens and you have to you have to call upon the very best of yourself and, and do the thing and have the strength to do what needs to be done in that horrid moment, right? Mm -hmm. So to, to, to be here in this place, right? That's, that's the gift of meditation. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I recently was having a conversation with a friend and he was, he was talking about um, the benefits of living honestly and how um, when honesty is the principle by which you operate, it just frees you from the burden of, of having to, of, of not fear, I guess, but, but of having to worry about keeping stories straight and, yeah. and all these different things, you know, you're, you're split, it, you're split, your personality is split, right? Yeah. And, and it, and it dawned on me that, um, that mindfulness, like you're talking about is actually another version of, of living honestly, because to be in the moment is truly all we have, yeah. right? Like we can't change the past and we can't actually control the future as much as we might want to try and <laughs> influence it. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of another version of that is, is this living honestly idea when you're, when you're just in the moment, not that if you're not in the moment, you're like a liar or, or some right. label like that, but just um, I think that maybe that's why it's so powerful is because it's aligned with um, a deeper sense of truth. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that about about truth and honesty because um, I was watching Pretty in Pink the other day because it was you know sometimes it runs on TV, and and there's this scene where um, Molly Ringwald and Andrew McCarthy are in like the the stables you know they're having a date and they're talking and he says to her, "You don't lie, do you?" And I just mm. think that dialogue because that that's an interesting question to, for him to ask her and she says no right. i don't need to she said mm. right that, that's exactly what we what we're talking about right now how she, mm. she is very much who she is and that's one of the reasons why he admires her that she is not afraid to be who she is despite not fitting in and and she is she's honest and she believes in mm -hmm. herself right and so it, it's funny that just caught my ear even no matter how many times I, i'd seen that movie just this week, I heard that. I was like, wow, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting how, I mean, it, it uh, loosely maybe related to what I was talking about earlier, where it's like you, you see these recurring themes or patterns or, or ideas that show up in a variety of places. Um, and it, it almost, it, it made me think of it actually when you were talking about the story with Jesus earlier and being like, why do I have to tell you people this stuff over and over again, you know? Because that's, I mean, that in and of itself with ourselves, I think, is a very human experience. I mean, I I, uh, I have a, a coach that I work with, just a, like a life coach. And um, and I've told her before, I'm like, I don't understand why I keep 
learning these same lessons over and over, you know, like I, I learn a lesson and I'm like, okay, I got it. I'm, I'm better for it. I'm moving on. And then sometimes a week, sometimes months, but whatever, inevitably I stumble. And then the answer is the answer that I already learned. And it's like, what is wrong with me? And she was like, you're just a person is what's wrong with you. Like, that's just, that's just what it is. Um, But yeah, so it's just so interesting to see how these things continue to, to crop back up and, I guess I'm having to learn to accept that I, uh, it's not a math problem I can solve. I'll always have to, <laughs> it'll always require maintenance. <laughs> it's practice, right? It's yeah. a practice, right? Sometimes you, you, you fall off the horse and then you just get back on and, and you keep going. <laughs> right. Right. You know, obviously we, we talked about your, your role as an educator and, and, you know, Chris Crabtree and, and the, the folks at River Pretty. And so that's largely students. Um, in your experience, I mean, what advice do you do you have for someone who is aspiring to to have a career as a writer? Um, I think it's something that can be daunting as a as a creative because it, I mean, you yourself started at, at a magazine, right? Mm-hmm. Started at Time, but but you haven't been employed by a company like that for your entire career as a writer. And I think when someone thinks about being a writer that's not employed somewhere, that can be intimidating. So. What would you what would you say to someone who is looking at that? I think uh, first of all, you have to understand your work and and mm. why you write, right? Because mm. you need to have it at the at the very basic level. You have to only you can understand why you're doing what you're doing, and, mm. and will keep going despite everything, right? So mm-hmm. there was a point where when I did decide to get my MFA, you know, I learned how to drive a school bus at one point, mm-hmm. so I could, you know, bring in some money to our, to my family while I'm getting this graduate degree, right? And mm-hmm. and there are people who would say, that's too much, or I'm not willing to take that risk, or I'm not, you know, well, then the, you have to understand that then. You have to accept that. You know, mm-hmm. what is your level of risk? What, is, what does it mean to you? Maybe you don't have to take that level of risk, right? There's so many writers who... You know, and, and I wrote my first novel, actually, while I was at People, and I would go someplace else at night and work on this book while I was you know, working during the day. So only you can decide what you're willing to do and how much the writing is important to you. Um, <clears throat> but the second thing is, is to have a community, right? And that's, mm. that's the wonderful thing about an MFA program is that it gives you this community that you come back to every six months where you can be around people who, who know the, um, the level of commitment that you have and who are passionate in the way that you are passionate. And, and you can talk about books and writing and, and, you know, in a way that the outside world would think you're crazy, right? But, but this is mm-hmm, your mm-hmm. people, right? And even after you graduate it, you can see through River Pretty, you know, we are all still connected and supporting each other and we're still writing, right? So, so that, that's how you keep going because it is a very difficult thing. Right. But, but right. you have your why you, you have your why and and you do the things that help you to understand your craft and to help you understand how you want to be in the world as a writer so that you can live it. Right. Right. I, 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 I as as you're coming to learn in this conversation, I'm bad with remembering details sometimes, so I don't <laughs> remember exactly who said it. Um, I, I want to say it was Oscar Wilde, but I might be wrong. Um, but it was some famous author from from previous times that that was asked um, if he remembered all the books that he read, mm-hmm. and he said that the books that he read were like the meals that he ate. That 
he certainly didn't remember all of them, but they all ultimately shaped who he was t today. Yeah. Uh, so I say that as a preface to this question, because I understand that it, it's a, almost a silly question to some extent, because there's probably infinite things. But, you know, for someone that, that's had this storied career as a writer, as yourself, that, that continues on, um, what do, what are some of the more influential writings that you've read? I mean, are there things that you think of as kind of um, milestone books that you read that was like, oh wow, this really influenced you know the rest of my life as a writer or just just in, in general? You know, you know, you have all of the you know the big name writers. You know, uh, you know, I grew up in Lorain, Ohio, so so which is where Toni Morrison was from. So I feel a deep connection to her work, but. But the things that have truly influenced me are moments in writing that I still think about, even though I read them years ago, and, and that they capture something of an essence of what I try to do in my writing. So for mm -hmm. example, um, Anita Shreve, who died, um, who died a few years ago now, wrote a ton of novels, but one book, Fortune's Rocks, and it takes place in like the, the early 1900s, and it opens with um, at a beach, and it's it's at a time where you know there's a division between the men and the women's um, bathing hours, right? The men at the beach one time, and and this girl, her family has just arrived at the beach for the summer, and she has immediately gone down to the beach without realizing that it's still the men's time, and she has gone onto the beach. She has taken off her stockings, and she's walking toward the water. And, and the opening chapter says something about how she realizes in that moment what it is to become an object of desire, mm -hmm. right? It talks about the, the eyes on her ankles, her, on her bare ankles. And, and I just, I'm thinking that is the essence, that is the essence of desire, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and a lot of people will tell you, especially in the book, Unforgivable Love, they will talk about how, I write about sex in a way that's just so sexy, but it's not graphic. Mm. And it's because I am constantly, because I'm going for the essence of desire, of, of the emotion, right? Not just this physical, what things look like, but what does it feel, right? Mm -hmm. And so, and I always come back to that passage in that book because I felt that she captured that, even to recognize that, that, that's, that, that, that that's possible. What, mm -hmm. is, what is desire? Right. Um, I love the statues of Rodin. Um, I'm even going to tip my thing there. That's Rodin up here, right? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, the statues of Rodin, I feel, capture that same essence of desire and constantly thinking about that. There's a book, actually, I have it over here because someone asked me if I would lead a book discussion <clears throat> and asked me what I wanted to talk about, what book I wanted to talk about. And I chose Our Souls at Night by Kent Haruf. Mm. I read this book a couple of years ago, but but I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk about it with someone because this book is still in my head. Mm. Kent Haruf um, wrote the books Plain Song, Benediction, and this was actually the book that he wrote as he was dying. He was dying of a terminal illness, and this was the last book he wrote. And, and same thing, there is emotion. It's a very simple story but the emotion in this book just grabs my heart. And it's about two elderly people, right? It's about Addie and Lewis. 
they they've known each other all their life like they this is like a small town neighborhood and in the beginning of this book Addie goes over to Lewis's house and asks him if he will come and sleep with her and not in a sexual way but just I can't sleep and I don't want to take any pills but I feel if someone was there next to me that I could sleep right mm. and and you can think about it and 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 he does and he's and it's it's so endearing he's like you know, he always thought that she was a good-looking woman, right? And and then he he decides to do it, and it still breaks my heart to think about it. He puts his belongings, his pajamas, and his toothbrush in a paper bag, rolls up the paper bag, and then walks down the alley to her back door because he doesn't want people to see that he's going to spend the night there. And and she opens the door, is like what are you doing back here? And, and she's like, Oh, I don't care about what people think, but, but they start doing this. They start sleeping together and, and talking about their lives because even though they've known each other, they don't know about their marriages and, and the spouses who died. And it's such a, I love watching this friendship develop, mm. but then their children find out what's going on and they're horrified. Mm. They have to stop this, right? And and my in I'm so indignant on their behalf. I am so upset that 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 for no reason these people want to crush their happiness. These elderly people who have nothing else in the world, they want to take this away from them. And and I tell you, I read this book when it first came out a couple of years ago, several years ago. There will be times when I am in the shower in the morning and I suddenly think about this book. I get angry all over again. <laughs> what? But I, I love it. And so I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk to a group of people, to introduce this book to other, another group of people and just to talk about it. Because to me, this is, this is the essence of writing. It's just that simplicity of a story and capturing the, the essence of love, of who we are, when we connect, when people truly connect with each other and are honest about their lives and who they are. And I just... There's nothing better. It's absolutely nothing better. <laughs> mm. Well, I, I, um, I say this, and again, I, I'm, we don't know each other that well, so there's no way you could know. But I, I don't say it in an attempt to flatter. Again, as, as I've said a couple other times, but it's it, it's interesting that that's what resonates with you so well because I think that that's what your work is. Um, I, again, with the brief time that I've spent with it, it it just drips with with this earnest. Um, honesty that is um that is just incredibly human um and and so i yeah i'm i'm eager to continue reading more of your work um i'm eager to continue watching your morning walk videos um so i i hope you you said you're going to be returning to your weekly schedule so tomorrow morning i'll be out tomorrow morning if it's not raining well, do it. Yeah, thank you thank you i would appreciate that <laughs> um but but no but but Zafrani, thank you so much for for coming on the show today and sharing um, your thoughts and your wisdom and your your insights. Um, I, I, again, I I just can't say enough um, good things. And 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 I I also want to just clarify, which it's probably obvious, but I don't praise you as a peer or anything either. As as a fan, right? Like it, it's just it, it's just really really honorable to to be able to talk to someone um, that's that. That has accomplished as much as you have in this space. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on or anything else that you would like to share while we're still here together? I will share that the, the program that I'm leading uh, will be in Michigan. So okay. it, it's at Alma College, that's A-L-M-A. And uh, it hasn't been 
um, announced yet, but by the time this comes out, maybe it, it will be. So I, I thought I would point that out. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm really excited to, to bring a low residency program. Uh, there is none in Michigan right now. So, so oh, wow. I'm excited about that prospect. I'm excited because, um, you know, community is important as, as we've been discussing. I'm excited to build a writing community and, mm -hmm. and to, to help people find their voices and to know that their voice matters. So, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. And then, and then your, your book that you had mentioned also, uh, The Seeker and the Monk, Everyday Conversations with Thomas Merton, yes. that's scheduled to come out in, in the spring of next year. Yeah, okay. March 16th. Yeah. March of 2021. Okay, awesome. It'll be available for pre-order very soon. We're actually going to do a cover reveal, um, gosh, probably sometime in August for that. Oh, okay. Awesome. Pre-order, yeah. Wonderful. Well, I, I, I will have links to um, to the, the essays that you'd shared with me, to your website, and then to your YouTube channel as well. So again, anyone that would like to explore more of Sophronia's content, uh, please please follow the links in the show notes. Um, again, Sophronia Scott, thank you so much for, for joining the show today. It was a thank real pleasure. You. Thank you so much.
door's your chance to override And I know this right now Ooh, There's no guarantee of tomorrow night Vain as you know All right, folks, well, that's going to do it for the show today. Thank you so much again to Sophronia Scott for joining us today on the show. Thank you to Misha Zarens for providing the music. And, of course, thank you, listener, for listening to the episode. I also encourage you to check out my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is available everywhere podcasts are found. Pick Up Your Sticks is co-hosted by me and Brett Lindley. It's a podcast about video games, specifically why gaming matters. So if you enjoy long-form conversations like you find here on The Walk Show and like video games, I totally think you would enjoy Pick Up Your Sticks. Again, I appreciate the listen. Have a great week. Stay up. Stay up.